0: parable of the Good Samaritan is ubiquitous, it's pervasive, it's uh, shared all around the world as a quintessential story. It has become a part of the fabric of many, many cultures. It is universally attractive. How many uh, organizations, or hospitals I should even say, (laughs) Have you seen that are named the Good Shepherd Hospital? You can find one of these just up the eastern uh, coast at Baltimore. I know that there is one in Los Angeles that I have heard of. But how many of these locations across our nation? There is a ministry um, among the British Isles that is simply called Samaritans. And it has many different facets in so many different places, and its sole purpose is to, uh, to give hope to those who at, are at the point of despair and that uh, perhaps have uh, attempted suicide. <clears throat> it is a wonderful organization. <clears throat> are you aware of Samaritan's Purse? Sure you are. Here in the United States, this non-denominational evangelical outreach that has both a spiritual and a very realistic world care component that has become a large and present force in moving out into the world to care for those that are in need. All of these bearing that moniker of... Samaritan, the good Samaritan. And this is not a bad thing at all. In fact, it is a very good thing that it is being used for any good purpose. But I fear that the use of the terminology of good Samaritan misses the point of Jesus's provocative story entirely. I remember Evelyn Laycock. Is there anybody else here who here who remembers Evelyn Laycock? Raise your hand. Okay, we've got a few hands there. Evelyn Laycock was a resident um, of Lake Junaluska Uh, for most of her life. She was a resident there because uh, the United Methodist Church discovered that she was a gold mine as far as Bible teaching was concerned. She had such an understanding of Scripture. Uh, she studied constantly and, of course, read her Bible. But just to be in her presence, uh, God rest her soul, she is pastor now, but just to be in her presence was a profound thing because she could see things that others could not about the Scripture I remember being at a training where Evelyn Laycock was speaking one day and she was trying to get the point across about the importance of parables. And she said, and I have often repeated uh, and not referencing her, but I'm referencing her now so that you'll know where this comes from. She said, she said, every parable, every story that Jesus told has this punch to it, and with her fist she punched the ear. This is this little woman who uh, had no presence in the world, but she got her point across. Every parable has this punch to it, but she went on to say, she went on to say, if you don't get the punch, you haven't gotten the parable. Now this, this is something that should trouble us a little bit when it comes to a parable that is so well known uh, like the, seer, the sower who went out to sow the seeds or this parable that has just been read this morning the parable of the Good Samaritan. For if we easily move into that story and then move out again, I would suggest that we have not gotten the punch of the parable. It's interesting that there are some clues to understanding this parable that Luke places within the chapter before this parable is shared. In the 51st verse of the ninth chapter, Luke records that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Do you remember that passage, having even been there in the Scripture? Do you remember that Jesus himself was not this person that was simply befriended by Samaritans everywhere? but that Jesus, with his, with his ideology connected with Judaism, was an affront to what these Samaritans saw as being good for them. And some of them chose to have nothing to do with Jesus. The tensions between cultures have always been acute, And primarily, when it comes to matters of religion, the tensions between cultures create enormous problems. The swath of land above Jerusalem Judea, and yet below Galilee, there is a swath of land there between the Jordan River on the east and the Mediterranean Sea, on the west, that is considered to be the land of Samaria. It was a land that had a history of its own, a part of the northern kingdom. It was taken over by Assyria. This is not meant to turn into a history lesson, but it's fascinating that what happened was for the peoples that lived there, the Jewish peoples, we know that when the southern kingdom was overtaken, that they were taken into exile in Babylon. But as far as the northern kingdom was concerned, when they were assaulted by Assyria, no one knows where they were taken. All we know is that they disappeared. <clears throat> Assyria knew that it needed to repatriate this area. And so they brought Persons that were a part of the conquests in other places and deposited them in that land. And that's what we call Samaria today. That swath of land above Jerusalem and below Galilee was a contested area then, not unlike it is today. Do you hear me on this? Do you remember that Jesus had not taken it upon himself to avoid Samaria, as most Jews would do? Most Jews would trace their path over to the Jordan River and go north if they had to travel toward Galilee in order to avoid contact with those who lived in Samaria. Because they knew that they too would, would ruffle the feathers of any person who saw them traveling through what they considered to be their land. Jesus had a conversation with a woman at a well in Samaria. And in that conversation, he asked her for water, which was beyond her imagining that he, a man, would be asking a woman, but especially a Jewish man would be engaging her in any conversation whatsoever. In that conversation, Jesus spoke to her about the living water that he could provide. And then he said something that was fascinating. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. There were two different temples. One that was built upon Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. That is still what we call the Temple Mount today. But there was another temple that was built by the Samaritans on the top of Mount Gerizim in this swath of land. Now, it's interesting, when King Herod came to take over the entirety of this area, he thought, I'm not going to try to get rid of one or the other group. I'm going to support both groups. And so what we know happened in Jerusalem was that a great temple was built there. But did you know that King Herod also built a temple on Mount Gerizim to satisfy the Samaritans that were living there? Fascinating. 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 Why would he do that? Because the Jews believed that on top of Mount Moriah, that's where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice his son. And the angel of the Lord halted the motion of the knife As he was about to commit that act of sacrifice. On Mount Gerizim. Just as every historical area in the Holy Land is contested. Guess what? The Samaritans believed that it was on top of Mount Gerizim. That Abraham lifted that knife to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Can you see the tensions that might develop here? Between the Jews and the Samaritans who could not see eye to eye. In fact, at the very bedrock of their faith, they were in two separate worlds. Either you come to Mount Gerizim or you come to Mount Moriah. There was no mixing of those ideas. The Samaritans and the Jews both believed that they were the true line of what God had intended. It is inevitable that allegiances develop across the years. I I mean, come on, this is who we are, right? We have our allegiances in certain places. Does it sound familiar to you? Or do you believe that we live in a culture that doesn't have allegiances right now? You can interrupt this sermon right now if you believe that we don't have allegiances in our culture. It is so obvious that you and I have bought into certain ideologies that become destructive. In the very way in which we treat each other, not just the way in which we think about life, but about the way in which we think about each other. There was this lawyer who approached Jesus, and he was no doubt a scribe. He was not some evil man, in fact, he was quite uh, reputable. Um, I read a story just recently that there is a man in upstate New York. There may have been a number of people like this and still may be right now, but there is a man in upstate New York who just finished writing through the entirety of the Bible. Now, I'm around many people that say I'm reading through the Bible, but I have yet to meet someone who has copied every word of the Bible, taken page after page after page in order to actually write the words that are in the Bible in longhand. Can't you imagine that that is a fantastic way to learn the scripture, how it might embed itself, how it might impress itself on every fiber of your being as you are writing those words and owning them. Scribes did this day in and day out. They would sit down with pen in hand there at the scrolls. And it was their meticulous care for the work of making sure that every dot and tittle was in its place. So that nothing would change across the generations over and over again. They would write day in and day out. And so this lawyer, this one who has spent time as a scribe, who understands the scripture better than so many in his day, comes to Jesus And a question is raised. A question is raised by someone who already knows the answer. I mean, any good attorney will do that, right? An attorney doesn't go into court and ask questions for which he has not an idea of what the answer is going to be. He thinks through what kind of questions need to be asked. And he already knows what the answer is. Otherwise, he doesn't want to bring it up. Or she doesn't want to bring it up. Because you get into messy, messy territory when you get off script. But Jesus, it's interesting, with this lawyer, this religious lawyer, in a sort of Socratic way, he turns it back on him because when the question Here is raised, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you tell me, what's written in the law? That's interesting. Jesus puts it back on the man to give him an idea, and guess what? As everyone might expect, he scored an A-plus on the test. This lawyer said, of course, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But then we began to see what the lawyer is all about because Luke points out but wanting to justify himself he couldn't be satisfied with one question he had to ask another question and this is where he got into trouble what seemed like such a simple question to answer he said to Jesus And who is my neighbor? It seems to be a fair question. And surely he was expecting some kind of legal definition of the relationship between those whom we have no responsibility to care for. It may be that uh it's interesting that Frederick Beekner says that uh, he was expecting some kind of uh, judicial response like a, a, a neighbor uh, hereinafter referred to as the party of the first part is to be construed as meaning a person of Jewish descent whose legal residence is within a radius of no more than three statute miles from one's own legal residence unless there is another person of Jewish descent hereinafter to be referred to as the party of second part living closer to the party of the first part that one is oneself in which case the party of the second part is, is to be construed as the neighbor to the party of the first part and one is oneself relieved of all responsibility of any sort of kind whatsoever. Have you got that? <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted Jesus to spell it out. Who is my neighbor? Now, Howard Thurman, who I have been reading the sermons of, Um, for these past several weeks in preaching this sermon series, Howard Thurman said, it is part of the pattern of cultures and civilization to make a radical distinction between those who belong and those who do not belong. This is the nature of even our family life. And there's, Something very good about that. We want to know who's in our family and who's not in our family in order that our family might have some definition and be able to understand, okay, so where are the borders of who we are and who we are not? We do that with all the groups that we're a part of. You look at it yourself. The groups that you participate in, don't you want to know who's in and who's not in? We build these little worlds around ourselves in order to define what is private and what is public, what is family and what is community, what is my neighborhood as opposed to what is your neighborhood. And this lawyer, respected as he was for knowledge and faith and goodness, as he would have had much respect in his day. Jesus was trying to deal very honestly with him on a matter of which he had very little true investment. And so Jesus tells this parable. It's not a long parable. Jesus tells this parable of a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's sort of a Wild West kind of place. I'm sure with bandits and if it were in the badlands of the U.S., we would say, an Indian, sure, Indians are out there somewhere, you know all of our stereotypes at work. But it was this very dangerous place as anyone traveling that road knew that there were ravines and corners and crevices where persons could catch you unaware and take everything that you had, which is evidently what happened to the man that Jesus is speaking of in this parable. For Jesus says that he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. It may be that the man resisted them. If he had just simply given him them everything that he had, maybe he would have come out in a better situation. I'm trying to analyze this situation here. But, but whatever occurred... He was left for dead beside the road. And now it happens that a priest going down the road saw him and he passed by on the other side. We don't know really the reason for that. It may have been the schedule that the priest was on. I've been on a hectic schedule this week myself. I can understand that. Passing by on the other side of the road. And a Levite one of those good upstanding ones who has temple care built into his very genes, he decided it's not going to happen today. And in fact, I don't know but what you aren't a ruse trying to get me over to the side of the road so that your buddies can attack me. It's not going to happen today. And so finally, as Jesus is telling this, he says, but a Samaritan... While traveling came near him. Now, if you can sort of imagine what might have been going on in the mind of this lawyer who asked the question. Maybe you can see that the lawyer, the lawyer may have put himself in the place of the man beside the road. Because he had traveled that road before. And he was thinking, okay, the two that I thought would help didn't help at all. And here in this story, Jesus presents this oxymoron, this good Samaritan. There is no such thing as a good Samaritan in his mind. This good Samaritan is going to be the one to provide the cure. Most of us, when we think of this story, we want to put ourselves into the role of the Good Samaritan. We think of ourselves as Good Samaritans. There was a headline in the paper just a couple of weeks ago about some Good Samaritans here in Statesboro. And I thought, well, this, interest, this is interesting because it plays into this parable. But the truth is, you would not have wanted to be identified as a Samaritan in any way, shape, or form. That's the nature of what the Samaritans were. I heard a... A minister in our conference once shared that, that early on in his ministry, he came upon a terrible car accident. Um, it actually was, I think, a car and a truck that had, had run into each other. And he said he got out of his vehicle, went over to the truck, the pickup that was, was just a shell of what it used to be, And realized that there was a man that was inside the truck. The man had been injured. And they fell into conversation. And the minister said to the man, the minister said to the man, we're going to get you out of here. But already the minister was thinking, we've we've got very little time because gasoline was everywhere. And just one spark would have sent that up in flames and the minister was standing there talking to the man and said to him we're going to get you out of there we're going to take care of you and the man said oh good oh good oh good take take care of me but then the man from inside the truck said wait and I'm cleaning up the language here he said are you black The minister said he could not believe it. He couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that this man, even in a situation in which his very life was at stake, that he was so gripped by his prejudice that it was to death do us part If we, if we easily move into the story of the Good Samaritan and then move out again, we haven't gotten the story. We don't know the punch that was a part of what Jesus was saying. For this is the story that for us might raise the question from our lungs, from our voice. Wait, are you Muslim? Or, wait, are you undocumented? Or, wait, are you gay? I'm messing with you now. I'm messing with you. Jesus, in his parables, did this type of thing because that's what Jesus did He doesn't want to leave us in those easy, comfortable places where we do not find the kingdom of God. What do you do with this information? Let me say that I I love this painting by by Van Gogh. I wish that we're a little bit clearer on this wall we're going to figure this out one of these days but the i hope that you can see the beauty of it and and you know the the beauty of the painter van gogh but it it moves me <laughs> this painting particularly moves me beyond the neediness of the situation because van gogh has captured it In such a personal and true moment of agape. As the one who is being cared for. You can see that he is most definitely in pain. And unable to care for himself. And this one who has come to his aid. Is struggling as best he can to right this person on this donkey and to care for him it is so personal this relationship that has gone beyond every cultural barrier that there might be and it is the unexpected one who is doing the caring It has been a couple of years ago now, but Theodore came to see me. Oh, he's been seeing me for the last 30 years, every six months to a year. But Theodore showed up. He was a homeless man, and I knew that he wanted some assistance. And so in the good name of Pittman Park, United Methodist Church, I gave him some assistance. But he was here in town as we were putting him up in a local motel. And his situation became very grim. He was fighting congestion in his lungs. And in fact, by the time that I got him to the hospital, to the emergency room, There was a question at the emergency room whether he would be able to pull through this. Now, this, I want you to realize, is a part of any pastor's work. This is not something that that I created or did in any exceptional way. It was just one of those things that pastors do. But we were sitting in the emergency room. There must have been nine people that raced in because his blood oxygen level had gone so low. They were racing in and doing everything they could to care for him. And I was sitting in the corner of the room where they were doing all of this work and just watching. And when they finally were successful at getting him to a stable place, Theodore was there in that bed and we just looked at each other and He raised his eyebrows and shrugged his shoulders. And I fell in love with the man. Some of you know a little bit of this story that Theodore never left town after that, except in death. I was with him when he died. Sue and I both were. But that was a year later. But Theodore, Theodore helped me to break through a barrier that is so severe and so structured because it is easier, it is easier to help people without actually looking in their eyes. And falling in love with the nature of who God is in them. Howard Thurman said two other things that I want to share with you. He said, Jesus seems to be insisting that we relate ourselves to the person and not just the need. And he also said, the primary thing is that when I say, I love... It means that I am involved in an encounter that leads from the core of me to the core of you, past all the good things I know about you, beyond all the bad things I know about you. Jesus' way of love, his way of community, breaks through all types of barriers. There are no barriers. As far as Jesus is concerned. In fact if religion becomes a barrier. Get religion out of the way. For Jesus. There are not going to be barriers. Between people. We will not be asking. The question. Who is my neighbor. That will be coming back around to Jesus's question. To the lawyer, which of these was the neighbor? And the lawyer could only answer one way. He was the one who offered mercy. And Jesus knew he had gotten his point across in saying, Go thou and do likewise.